0: This is American Founders, Part 3, Money of the Confederation Congress. Let's get started. The Confederation Congress was not the only government in America with money problems, or for that matter, even the worst problems. That the Congress had no practical way of dealing with those woes was bad, but the states didn't have the means to deal with their money problems either. And the decisions they made about those problems almost made the paralysis of the Confederation Congress look appealing. We'll explore these decisions and in particular the contributions made by the Philadelphia merchant Robert Morris. Financial problems appeared in the states almost as soon as the revolution began. In the spring of 1775, the Pennsylvania Assembly began purchasing firearms and stores and established a 25-member committee of safety to oversee the purchases. Benjamin Franklin was named the committee's chair, but the real leadership fell to a Philadelphia merchant, Robert Morris, a partner in the Philadelphia trading firm of Willing & Morris. At the time, no one knew what the cost of the conflict with Britain was, might be and the Pennsylvania Treasury was until new tax measures were passed and funds collected wholly inadequate to the first demands made on it Robert Morris obligingly advanced to the state's 25,000 pounds from his own purse but this amount didn't last long when the Pennsylvania Assembly turned to consider raising new funds through tax revenues It encountered the unpleasant legacy all the colonies had inherited from British policy over the previous quarter century. The fundamental problem was that America's most abundant asset was land. Its least abundant was specie, hard coin. This was, in large measure, a product of British commercial regulation. Britain's transatlantic commercial philosophy was built Around mercantilism, which assumed that national wealth was a zero sum game. Every nation started with a piece of the pie of wealth and could only become richer by taking pieces of other people's slices. The means for doing so were threefold number one, create financial reserves of hard coin, number two, to regulate the nation's economy to produce goods for which other countries would pay hard coin. And number three, establish colonies in places with valuable resources that could be extracted. By these means, Britain starved its colonies of specie. Every piece of British commercial legislation from 1660 onwards reached deeper into the colonial economies to ensure that the colonies served Britain's economic interests. The colonies got buy for themselves by issuing paper currencies and IOUs in the form of tax, anticipation notes, and land banks, which lent money to farmers for improvement, taking their existing land as collateral. But, Parliament forbade the creation of corporations or banks in the colonies. Thus, there was no mechanism for accumulating significant reserves from what small amounts of specie came into american hands for such merchants as robert morris business transactions were handled through privately written iou's known as bills of credit or bills of exchange by the outbreak of the revolution three quarters of all the money circulating in the colonies was paper of various sorts both congress and the states were ill-equipped to meet the sudden demand for financing The revolution. In both cases, the most familiar expedient was the issue of massive amounts of paper currency. By the end of the revolution, seven of the thirteen states had authorized the emission of paper money. Thus, while the Confederation Congress limped on by grudging foreign loans and the contributions from the states, the states themselves felt free to print their own money. Further, Farmers and small-scale borrowers discovered that this a painless way to make their own commercial debts disappear. Loans and mortgages that had been contracted before the revolution could now be effortlessly paid off in cheap paper currency. And if lenders and merchants balked at accepting the paper money, the legislators passed penalty laws that criminalized such refusals. The depreciating paper currency also created a problem between states when merchants in Massachusetts or Connecticut demanded payment for goods sold in Rhode Island and were presented with paper currency they knew was worthless any place except Rhode Island. There was nothing the Rhode Island legislature could do to reach across state boundaries and compel them to accept the money. Nevertheless. The legislature permitted rhode islanders to pay the amounts owed in rhode island currency to the rhode island courts which then declared the out-of-state debts legally satisfied this triggered an uproar in the confederation congress the frustration felt over the behavior of rhode island and other states had a much more dangerous political corollary because it suggested that republican form of government which lodged sovereignty in the people as a whole, would sooner or later prove that large numbers of those people were wholly unworthy to exercise sovereignty. That given political power, they would embark on increasingly reckless schemes for defrauding others. But in the state legislators, such complaints were dismissed as the whining of the rich and propertied. In Philadelphia, the Freemans' journal Indigently prophesies that without paper money, the people will, quote, shrink in despair from the magnitude and frequency of the tax bills, end quote. Paper money is, in fact, quote, the traditional medium of America, end quote. Robert Morris was originally from Liverpool and came to the colonies when he was 13. His father eventually apprenticed the boy to a merchant in Philadelphia, Charles Willington. When Willing died in 1754, Morris was made a partner in the company. Morris rose in wealth and standing, eventually being appointed as a port warden for Philadelphia, and in 1775 was tagged to represent Pennsylvania in the Second Continental Congress. Robert Morris was dubious about the wisdom of independence, but signed the Declaration of Independence anyway. Morris was also dubious about the wisdom of Pennsylvania's new state constitution. But none of these doubts prevented Morris from advancing money from his own pocket to pay the revolution's bills. Probably, all told, more than a million pounds. Not surprisingly, when the Confederation Congress moved in February 1781 to create three executive offices to manage his day-to-day affairs, Morris was unanimously named superintendent of finance. Robert Morris, however, did not accept the post until May of 1781, and even then only on the conditions that, one, Morris concentrates solely on a new financial system, not the payment of old debts, two, that Morris have full power to appoint and dismiss, quote, all person whatever that they are considered in the official expenditure of public monies, end quote. And three, that Morris be permitted to carry on his own private business affairs at the same time. Robert Morris achieved a series of small financial wonders for the Confederation Congress, including new loans from the French and the Dutch. But he also made enemies. The Virginian William Lee, whose brother Richard Henry Lee, had proposed the original motion for independence in 1776, denounced Morris as the, quote, most dangerous man in America, end quote, and accused him of plunging the country into, quote, public bankruptcy, while he at the same time amassed an immense fortune for himself, end quote. In July 1779, a congressional committee report attacked Robert Morris for profiteering but even more damning to Morris's reputation was his opposition to paper money. From 1779 until his appointment as Superintendent of Finance, Morris fought the issue of paper money in the Pennsylvania Assembly, especially when it was suggested that Pennsylvania's paper money, like Rhode Island's, be declared legal tender with penalties for non-acceptance. Morris was eventually acquitted of all the charges, but... Not before they had almost cost him his life. On October 4th, 1779, a street mob, whipped up by charges that Robert Morris was at the heart of all their economic woes, attacked Morris and other members of a Republican society at City Tavern in in Philadelphia. Morris and the society retreated to the home of James Wilson, and when the mob pursued them, they barricaded the doors. Someone began shooting, and in short order, the mob stormed the house, breaking down the doors and trading gunfire on the stairs. The mob wheeled up a small Hotwizer, but was eventually dispersed. No one could blame Robert Morris after the Battle of Fort Wilson for washing his hands completely of public affairs, nor could anyone in Congress blame Morris for driving a hard bargain over his powers as Superintendent of Finance In 1781, William Livingston, the governor of New Jersey, tried to soothe Robert Morris's disgruntlement with the assurance that, quote, you have done too much for your country not to create enemies, end quote. But it was also true that the revolution had spawned what one Boston newspaper complained about as a, quote, private, selfish, and basely avaricious spirit in the room of public virtue, end quote. It was difficult for Morris to insist on strict financial probity when American, quote, commerce is so managed as that it became a public nuisance instead of a common benefit, end quote. But as clearly as Morris understood that America's chief peril lied in the, quote, derangement of our money affairs, end quote, he could not get the states or the Confederation Congress to agree to any solution he proposed. On January 29, 1782, Robert Morris submitted to the Confederation Congress an ambition plan for restoring, quote, the immediate connection between the commerce, the agriculture, and the finances of a country, end quote, that included the approval of the 5% imposts passed by Congress in 1781, a national property tax on land, the recall of paper money by exchanging it for a national loan offered at 4% interest, and the establishment of a Bank of North America. Rhode Island sabotaged the impost by refusing to approve it, and a renewed initiative for it in 1784 failed as well. The Bank of North America was chartered by the Confederation Congress, incorporated by the Pennsylvania Assembly and began operations in 1772. But in 1785, Robert Morris's enemies in the Pennsylvania Assembly engineered a repeal of the state incorporation of the bank. Robert Morris damaged his own standing by egging on the Continental Army's mutiny in the hopes that he could somehow use the soldier's threat to beat back his foes and critics. By October of 1783, the Massachusetts legislator was instructing its delegation to the Confederation Congress to, quote, have the office of the Superintendent of Finance abolished, end quote. Disgusted, Robert Morris turned in his resignation and left his post on November 1st, 1784. Morris wrote the President of Congress, Elias Boudinot, quote, My attention to the public debt arose from the conviction that funding them on solid revenues was the last essential work of our glorious revolution, but other circumstances have postponed the establishment of public credit in such manner that I fear it will never be made. End quote. And Massachusetts, ironically, would soon offer the first proof of Morris's dread. Next time we meet, we will talk about American founders, part four: Benjamin Franklin, the first American.